0: Dr. Richard Besser is the president and CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the United States' largest philanthropy focused solely on health and health care. Besser is the former acting director for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and ABC News' former chief health and medical editor. He was recently named to a multi-state council by Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey, aimed at restoring the regional economy. Today, he discusses what his foundation is doing throughout this pandemic and how his experience developing emergency response preparedness at CDC has influenced his response now. Let's listen in.
1: Delighted to introduce to you Dr. Richard Besser, who is the CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, the largest foundation in the United States based on uh, health, the health and welfare and well being of, of communities, uh, all communities in the United States, not just a, a select few, uh, an amazing, equitable organization. Uh, Many of you may remember Rich as the director of the CDC, acting director of the CDC, or his time on TV as ABC News chief health and medical editor. Uh, And he was recently named uh, by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy to the New Jersey Governor's Restart and Recovery Commission, a 21-member task force that will advise the governor and his administration on the state's recovery and opening efforts. And following Rich's remarks, uh, we'll open it up to questions. So Rich, uh, take it from here.
2: Thanks so much, Maxine. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. I, I want to thank you for for the uh, invitation. Thank you personally, Maxine, for for connecting me to uh, uh, to this group. Um, you know, one of the things that I found during the years at CDC, I, I ran emergency preparedness and response for four years there, um, and one of the things that we uh, we always looked to as a success factor factor was whether we could. Uh, Keep the response uh, as apolitical as 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 possible Uh, as soon as things became uh, uh, by uh, Became partisan it became much harder to accomplish what was necessary for the health of of the public Um, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, The Robert Johnson Foundation our perspective and how how we're seeing things play out here during uh, during COVID-19 and and where we're putting our, our energies and then uh, then uh, hopefully we'll have a, a robust conversation that I think will be uh, the most in- enjoyable for me as Maxine said we are the we are the largest philanthropy in the United States focused on health in, in America uh, uh, we were at about 11 billion dollars before this hit um, I don't even want to look where we are right now uh, but we are focused on improving health uh, uh, in America for uh, those who are most most vulnerable and uh, over the course of our Almost 50-year history. Uh, we were very engaged in developing the 911 emergency response system. Very engaged in reducing tobacco uh, smoking rates here, uh, here in the United States, um, um, and a lot of focus on healthcare, improving healthcare systems, training people to do health services research. Uh, but about uh, about uh, I guess six or seven years ago, uh, we recognized that. Uh, we needed to do more. If we truly wanted to uh, have an America in which everyone had an opportunity for for health, um, we came to recognize that that health was about much more than having access to high quality, affordable health care. Um, I am uh, hunkered down here in in Princeton, New Jersey, um, which is where our foundation is is located, and it, it's actually where where I grew up. and a child who's born here in, in Princeton has a life expectancy of, of 87 years. Uh, it's above the, the national average. Uh, I'm a general pediatrician and I, I still volunteer as a pediatrician. And uh, I do that in a, in a clinic in, in Trenton, New Jersey, which is same county as Princeton. It's, a, it's about 15 miles away. And a child born near my clinic in, in Trenton has a life expectancy of 73 years. So 15 miles and a 14-year Difference in in life expectancy Uh, And why is that Uh, I can tell you it's it's not? uh, Just about access to to health care Health is about uh, where we live uh, And work and where our kids go to school and play and 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 where we worship all of those factors play in to Whether or not we have an opportunity for health or barriers to health Uh, and so we've, we've shifted our focus towards what we call a, a culture of health and trying to help create conditions uh, in communities across America that will allow people uh, to live healthy lives, allow people to make healthy choices, because it's clear that the, the choices people make depend on the choices that they have. And for far too many people in, in America, uh, they aren't healthy choices. There are barriers. Barriers due to structural racism and sexism and classism, and uh, uh, how we treat people with disabilities, and if we don't ad- address the fundamental conditions in which people live, uh, conditions that just get replicated generation after generation, we're not going to be able to address that difference in life expectancy. So, you know, as the COVID pandemic has been been playing out. Uh, We're seeing uh, we're seeing what we thought we would see. And that's that is that the burden of this pandemic is not being felt evenly across society. Um, Your income and the color of your skin will largely determine how well you do during this this pandemic. We're seeing rates of hospitalization and death among black Americans Latinos indigenous people uh, two three four five times higher than than uh, for for uh, than the representation in, in the population uh, and that's just wrong uh, and a lot of it comes down to uh, To underlying health conditions to to start um, If you look at conditions in in lower income communities largely communities of color um, The conditions are worse air quality is worse air quality has been linked to Lung disease and heart disease and underlying medical conditions that put you at greater risk of having a bad outcome for for COVID. Um, But it's also who is able to work remotely uh, and who is not Uh, uh, if you look low-income workers um, and uh, Over-representation there of of black Americans Latinos uh, Very low percentages can work work from home. And so what we have been what, What people have been forced to to do is make a decision between uh, staying home and and uh, physically distancing and protecting themselves and their families and their communities, or going to work so that they can put food on the table uh, or or pay their rent, and that's not a choice anyone should have to make. But in America, that's the choice that millions of people have have had to make. Uh, so as of as a philanthropy, we're trying to call attention to these issues of of health equity. Uh, uh, Policy solutions that need to be put in place in the short term to address immediate needs and then in the longer term to address uh, The the society we feel uh, We'd like to see in america uh, an america in which truly everyone has the opportunity for the american dream and the idea that uh, Where you're born shouldn't determine uh, How long how long you live? um Our our uh, philanthropic work um, early on we uh, We decided to do something we we uh, Typically don't do and that was to provide significant humanitarian assistance Um, We tend to work long term uh, On policy change on policy change supporting groups and communities that are focused on changing community conditions Uh, but given the the extent of this this health crisis we Uh, very quickly put out $50 million in humanitarian assistance to address uh, needs around food, uh, housing support, income support for some of the most marginalized groups. So low-income workers, uh, 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 people of color, people with disabilities, uh, to do a number of things. One, to provide some support, uh, but also to draw attention to issues of of inequity, uh, to, to work to make sure that, as our policymakers are looking to address needs in America, um, these issues of inequitable impact uh, play out. You know, it's, I, I, uh, I was at, I worked at CDC for 13 years, and uh, you know, I would be in on conversations developing public health guidance for all kinds of conditions. And as I reflect back on the work that we did, we didn't spend nearly enough time Talking about uh, who could adhere or comply with the guidance we were putting out, and who couldn't, and what needed to be put in place to make sure that that everyone in America uh, could do those things to protect their health. And just I'll just give a couple examples during this pandemic, uh, uh, and then and then close up soon after that so we can have our conversation. But uh, one of them is is what was recommended about uh, accessing the healthcare system. So the recommendation from CDC, and it's still the recommendation, if you have mild symptoms that you think may be COVID, mild to moderate, uh, you shouldn't go to the healthcare facility. You shouldn't go to the emergency room. That puts pressure on our healthcare care system. Uh, call your doctor, and they can tell you what to do. They can tell you whether you need to seek care. Well, there are 28 million people in America uh, who don't have health insurance. So what are we saying to those people who, who are sick? Uh, They're going to the emergency room. If they didn't have COVID, they're increasing the chances that they got it when they they went to the emergency room. Um, Another recommendation uh, for people who have uh, either been diagnosed with COVID um, or may have been exposed, uh, go home and and isolate. Uh, Use, you know, stay in one room, use a separate bathroom, uh, keep away from other people. Well, what are we saying to people who live in in high-density living quarters? Uh, we're saying to them that the exposure they may be giving to their family uh, um, is too bad. We we don't care about that. When you look at some other countries that have provided uh, safe, secure living conditions for people who uh, may have been exposed or, or have COVID infection, why can't we do that in, in America, the wealthiest nation uh, in, in the world? What does it say about who we value uh, and who we don't, uh, uh, who we... Uh, Who we care about and and who we don't Uh, We we've we put a lot of focus on making sure that frontline healthcare workers are protected and that's very important Uh, But what about all of the other frontline workers the essential workers? Uh, Those who are ensuring that we have food on our supermarket shelves those who are driving our our buses and our our trains those who are working in our uh, meat processing facilities um, why don't we care the same about their lives? Why aren't we ensuring that they have all of the protection they need? So these are the issues we're, we're focused on. Uh, now as states are starting to uh, think about and some more than think about reopening their economy, uh, these disparities that we've seen to date, uh, uh, I'm very concerned they're gonna be magnified, they're gonna be amplified if we don't ensure that as people come back to work, uh, and clearly, people who need to come back to work will come back to work sooner. We don't ensure that those people have all of the protective gear that they need. If they get sick, that they have safe places to go, that there's adequate testing in all communities. Uh, there's there's so much here we can talk about in, in these areas. Um, I look forward to our conversation. Maxine?
1: Thanks, Rich. That was uh, great. I really appreciate your oversight, and all of your experiences are um, we've been having uh, these meetings for seems like months now, but uh, we've been listening to healthcare uh, experts and Policy experts and economists and it all comes down to you know, what you've been talking about here now What you know, what are we going to do in the future to make sure that we can? Uh, make lives better for all of us because we're all connected in such a way um, What we're going to do is call on some people. So anybody who has a question, please raise your hand I see one I wanted to um Uh, Make sure that I asked you just this one question in um, in the work that you do at the at Robert Wood Johnson. What is one of the things that you've seen from this pandemic that you you know that you said if we have to go after one or two things? What would be the first the one or two things we would go after right away uh, to ensure that this doesn't um, that we're going to have a we're going to have other crises? But what could we do um, to limit the uh, exposure of Vulnerable populations, but also those vulnerable populations interact with all of us, too uh, What do we do to what would be the first few things you would do and put on the table for our poly, for our political partners in this? No yeah. label.
2: Well, one one thing that I think is is critically important. Uh, I'm I'm uh, an infectious disease epidemiologist and uh, data really matters and so um, if, if you look at how data is being reported out uh, I think there, there are 30-some-odd 30, 30 states that report data by race and ethnicity. The others do not. Uh, there are only two states that are reporting out uh, testing by, by race and ethnicity. Uh, we need to see those data. Uh, it, will, it will tell us a number of things. It will tell us who's getting uh, uh, impacted the most in, in different states. It will tell us some information about where is testing taking place and where is it not. Uh, I was kind of blown away by the number of states that have implemented drive-through testing. I mean, that's great. It's great if you have a car. Uh, what are we doing for people who don't have a car who have to take public transit? Um, you know, so being able to get a sense of who is being tested and who's not. There's also, um, you'll learn a lot by by seeing uh, what percent of tests test positive. Uh, the World Health Organization has suggested that you want to see, uh, uh, in terms of determining whether you're doing enough testing of, of people, you want to see the percent positive drop below 10%. Um, in America, we tend to be testing just the sickest of the sick to determine if someone needs to go in the hospital uh, and whether it's, whether it's COVID in that setting. But, but if, if, if we're switching into the next mode of control here, uh, what you want to be able to do is test people even with mild symptoms because even though they'll do well, they have the ability to transmit this infection to to others and you want to know about that You want to be able to identify them and, and provide them with places to, uh, to, to Isolate if you're providing your data by percent positive and breaking that down by race and ethnicity You'll be able to see where there's gaps in certain communities versus versus uh, versus others Um, that's that's one important step that can be taken uh,
1: So let's go to we'll go to george
3: uh, <clears throat> Thank you, Rich, for those introductory remarks and uh, such a compelling statement of what we need. Uh, it's difficult to believe that anyone would resist the statement of the problem. Obviously, the challenges in executing against it and measuring our progress. Yeah. As to what we can do right now, I've got one suggestion, then i get got one question. Suggestion is let us at least test uh, those in nursing homes. My organization is Us Against Alzheimer's. That's a community that I care about. So at least could we do that because we know that those particular um, uh, locus uh, is is a particular breeding ground uh, for potential passing around of the disease. My question to you, Rich: Have you prioritized if you look across the various social determinants of uh, of disease? Have you prioritized different things, from environmental exposures uh, to income levels to access to the healthcare to comorbidity? Um, have you prioritized those in terms of a, a ranking to say this mix of
2: interventions is most likely to get at the problem more rapidly? Thanks. Thanks for that question. I, I, I think your point about testing is 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 spot on. Um, in addition to testing people with with mild symptoms across the board, um, there would be real value in doing testing, even of asymptomatic people in, in very high risk settings like like nursing homes. Um, you know, the the good news about COVID is that most people who get this infection will do fine, uh, either have mild symptoms or be asymptomatic. But the concern is that they can transmit the infection as well, and and people in nursing homes uh, high risk for for having more severe disease. So. Uh, you're routinely testing people, even without symptoms, who uh, are residents in in long-term care facilities and nursing homes, as well as people who, who work there. In terms of, the, of of our focus as a foundation, um, you know, there's there's before COVID and after COVID, and we're like like uh, so many philanthropies, being very flexible with our grantees, uh, allowing them to use our resources for general operating support and 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 shifting, but. Um, we have focus in a number of areas. One is, is uh, our working community was, uh, it was targeting a lot around, um, around housing, around, around mixed income development. There's some terrific examples around the country of uh, how mixed income housing development has, has really spurred uh, the kind of community development that allows all residents to, uh, to have uh, a, a healthy life. Uh, mixed income development uh, around Atlanta uh, uh, Purpose-built communities has an amazing uh, um, Development there in Eastlake that has it now provides uh, transportation to jobs uh, incredible schools um, uh, Public housing that you can't tell from from uh, uh, commercial housing uh, Really an incredible model for the type of development. We we'd like to see we're we're uh, a lot of our work, as I'd said, is on the policy front. Uh, and so uh, we do work around children and families. In, in America, we, we, uh, we love children. We just don't care so much for their families. And uh, uh, we'd like to see more fo- family supportive policies put in place, policies around living wage. Uh, if people are not provided a living wage, it's hard to expect them to provide nutritious food for their, themselves and their, and, and their children. Um, if people are, are spending 50% of their income on, on, on housing, there's not much left for, for other things. So, family supportive uh, uh, policies is another area, area that we uh, work in. Uh, our work around the healthcare system is is now focused on trying to ensure that healthcare is, is addressing people's total needs. And so, connecting the healthcare system with, with public health uh, and social services is, is, is a critical part of. Of, of what we do in, in, in that area. Um, you know, we have a, a program that works with Medicaid directors to try and ensure that Medicaid is, is not just looking at immediate medical needs, but, but broader than that. And during this period of COVID, uh, that grantee has been working with Medicaid directors to be flexible to ensure that Medicaid patients' COVID needs are being met. Um, you know, but one of the things that really worries me about states that are opening up um, is that for, for many states, they're just creeping by in terms of being able to care for patients who have COVID infections. And just think of all of the other medical conditions that, that aren't being cared for, whether it's cancer or diabetes or heart disease, um, all of the children who aren't getting immunized because parents are afraid to come into to clinics and some clinics aren't offering those, those services all of the people who may have colon cancer and breast cancer who don't even know it because screening programs for those those uh, diseases are, are on hold. So you wanna make sure that, you know, before you're reopening uh, uh, economies or as you're doing that slowly and carefully, you're doing it in a way that makes sure there's enough uh, capacity in your healthcare system to meet not just your COVID needs, but your your overall uh, health needs in your community.
1: Yep. Uh, thank you, Rich. Uh, I think K- Terry, can we hear you now? No, can't hear him. So next question. I'm gonna go on to the next one We'll see what we can do with you. can could write in your question and we'll we'll speak it out loud uh, Gila Bronner
4: uh, Yes, hi, thank you Maxine Dr. Bessard. Thank you so much first for your remarks as well as for your service. Um, I run a company that works with state and local governments and large and small public housing authorities around the country. So I appreciate the focus of the foundation um, and the, the focus specifically on the children and family area. So one of the issues that I think particularly local governments and housing authorities are facing right now is looking for what I like to call alternative revenue sourcing. So a question is, does the foundation work directly and in partnership with government entities, so public housing authorities, whether it's directly or through their 501 C3s and C4s that definitely have programming specifically in these areas, would they be eligible to to apply for and receive some targeted grants in those areas?
2: Yeah, you know we we um, accept very few unsolicited uh, grant requests. Um, you know, most of our work is through our work in housing is done through established grantees that we that we have, who are doing work on the kinds of programs we're looking to see move move forward. Um, and as I said, a lot of our work is is on the policy side, trying to move mm-hmm. forward to create the policy conditions to uh, uh, help foster the type of development we're we're looking for. So. Um, you know, when we put out the $50 million, uh, uh last month to, to support, uh, people in need, uh, 20 million of that went to, uh, local and regional, uh, uh, community foundations to support the work that they were doing. And so there may be opportunities through, through some of those grantees, but, uh, unlikely to be opportunity directly with us.
1: Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, ne- next question is from Bill Galston and then Glenn Lowenstein.
2: Yes.
5: Well, first of all, those of us who've been working in the area of children and families uh, are very grateful to Robert Wood Johnson for the kind of leadership that, uh, that you've displayed, not just for years, but for decades. And so it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, I want to, I want to talk policy for just a minute because there's a kind of conundrum that we're all wrestling with. And that is that the people who most need to go back to work are also the people who are most likely to belong to the kinds of vulnerable communities uh, that you've talked about in your opening remarks. For the most part, they can't they can't work remotely. Right. They have to work directly person to person in you know, direct provision of ser- services. So that lead, that leads to the testing issue as one important linchpin of the effort to assure that when they do go back to work, which will be sooner rather than later, they can do so with adequate safety, not perfect, but, but adequate. This, this brings me to my question where we're re- I'm really eager to hear from you. We're two months into this crisis full-blown crisis and total in two months, we have succeeded in testing 2% of the US population, 2%. We are so far short of the scale of testing that we need that when we start to reopen, we are bound to fall short of basic testing, basic safety standards that require testing. What can we do about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it it is a real challenge. We have nowhere near the uh, level of testing that we should have uh, to be to be safe, to be able to really track how this moves forward, and to be able to switch strategies from one where everyone is encouraged to practice uh, stay-at-home physical distancing and one where we're we're looking to reopen. Um, and so, from a public health perspective, we're we're not ready. Um, that being said. Uh, uh, There's real pressure to get people back to work. People are suffering uh, from from that as well. And so uh, uh, I think the effort still has to be there around building capacity for testing Um, But there are other things that can be done to make it safer for workers. So, you know, uh, I I I sit on the the, uh, The governor's commission here in new jersey as well as on the seven state regional commission looking at the northeast um, it's essential that as each industry is, is looking to be reopened that there be standards of what should be in place to reduce the risk for workers in that setting. And they shouldn't be voluntary they should be mandatory uh, uh, standards. Um, they should be developed in conjunction with the uh, uh, with, with labor organizations so that uh, workers can can uh, be represented in terms of, Uh, Understanding what risks are and how those risks are being being mitigated Um, And then when people are sick um, Yes, there needs to be testing available for people who are sick um, Targeting those who have been uh, getting hit the hardest and then ensuring that people who are sick um, Are provided with safe places to isolate? So just telling someone they're sick and sending them home is putting at risk their entire family and you know, so many people live in multi-generational households that what you're saying is thank you for your service thank you for being an essential employee now we really don't care what happens to the rest of your family and that's that's just wrong and th- those things can be done um, if, uh, if we put value on it and to date as a society we have not put the value there and and we really we, we really should you know th- think of all the empty hotel capacity dormitory capacity there are things that governments could do um, to be able to provide, space for people to isolate or quarantine that would, that would reduce the risk to people who are going to be uh, at increased risk due to workplace exposure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, Glenn?
2: Yeah. First, um,
6: Maxine, thank you. And Rich, thank you for being here because I think what we're talking about here is really a bedrock issue that we're all going to be dealing with for the next generation. And I love the idea of culture of health, and I love the way you make it real 14 miles away from where you work, because all of us have that 14 mile radius around us. So what I wanted to ask you is to drill into the Trenton versus Princeton issue that you raised, because I suspect about in 1960, the two places may have been pretty similar in how they looked over a period of time they change. And so if you're talking about a culture of health in Trenton that is inferior, what are the elements that cause that and how in some respects does your organization propose to improve the Trentons or help have us help improve Trenton or however you articulate it?
2: Yeah, thanks thanks for that question. I, you know, yeah, I grew up here in Princeton and uh, my family's been here since since 1960 um, And they were not they were not the same, you know the uh, uh, I, And I attribute a lot to structural racism um, if you look at uh, uh, People's ability to move between communities uh, Princeton over the over its history has blocked uh, multifamily housing uh, any kind of increased density housing that would make it more affordable For people to 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 move to Um, there. There was redlining in Princeton back in 1960 in terms of Where people in Princeton of of color could live and 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 where they couldn't and if you think about You know Trenton it's Trenton has been a city of disinvestment Uh, It it just hasn't seen the resources invested there uh, for many many decades Uh, One big challenge is how schools are funded not just here in New Jersey, but across across the country and and they're they're funded off of property taxes Uh, So Princeton has some of the best public schools in the nation and Trenton has some of the worst Um, And that kind of differential investment in the next generation has major major implications and it's it's frankly it's one of the things that really worries me about the pandemic is Uh, you know as schools have gone remote um, who can go remote and who can't Uh, how are the special needs of children being being met? You know, I remember a A a child I saw in clinic in 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 trenton Uh, he was uh, he was four years old And his mom he had special needs his mom had been waiting two years to get him the special services That he needed to reach his full potential. I know that there's not a two-year waiting list here in, in princeton and so, you know, these kinds of issues are, are really fundamental. And we have to, we have to ad- address them as a nation and say, okay, uh, what are the barriers? What do we do to, to remove those barriers? You know, the, 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 the redlining issue plays out big time right now because if you think about wealth accumulation in America, uh, white Americans uh, on average have 10 times the wealth of black Americans. And wealth in America stems largely from housing. Uh, you know if you bought a house and invested in a house, that's where people's wealth is And and black americans were shut out of that. Uh, you know with the gi bill and And uh, who was allowed to get loans and who wasn't so you know, there's all of these things that go back You know, just Decades and decades and decades that we have to think about what policies can can undo, undo Undo that and one of the things that we feel is really important is just to call it out uh, that uh, you know uh when I hear people say wow if, if people would just make healthier choices, we just have to teach people about nutrition I'm like seriously, you know You see what kind of food you're going to be able to feed your family if you're getting paid ten dollars an hour Um, you know, let's let, let's get real here uh, before we 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 f- we focus the energy so largely on individual decision making
1: Yeah, um one of the um, I think I think I have uh, a terry's question here is that um Partially, this people's poor health is caused by nutrition or the lack thereof, kind of what you're talking about, why they have higher obesity and diabetes increasing. Is there a chance that with what we've witnessed in this last uh, crisis over the last several months, that there is an opportunity to increase uh, the uh, WIC payments and the payments for uh, healthier eating to families? And one thing that I learned today that I did not know um, in families in these neighborhoods that cannot go to the grocery store because they can't. They not number one don't have transportation, but they're not supposed to be exposed. You can't use your WIC card or your your uh, food card on uh instagram. They won't take it and so there's another barrier and it seems like the, if we know what the barriers are, they should be relatively easy um to reduce you know finding a way for Instagram to take it, but also how could we look at the the way we're giving money for food? We found the money we found trillions of dollars um to to put in these um financial economic um uh, Stimulus and, and supports. What if we'd done it just as part of an everyday life? Would we have made people healthier?
2: Yeah, that's. That, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Nutrition is is critically important. A lot comes down to income. Um, here in the crisis, um, looking at uh, expanding uh, WIC payments, expanding SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Uh, there's been move to reduce some of the barriers to enrollment in those programs. Um, You know as a foundation we've been playing a lot of defense because there's been so much effort to try and roll back uh, uh, These programs increasing work requirements and such uh, and those have been put on hold thankfully Um, But nutrition is very important. Uh, You know, there's that paradox of uh, high rates of obesity among lower-income Americans and uh, that comes down to the fact that um, you know, uh, if you want to fill somebody's belly, it, it tends to be with, you know, high calorie, uh, low nutrition, uh, foods. So, um, yeah, there's a lot that can be done on the, uh, on that side, but uh, so much comes down, I think, to, to paying a living wage, um, uh, that will drive demand for healthier foods that will hopefully, uh, uh encourage, uh, better supermarkets to come into low lower-income neighborhoods. We've done some work in that area. We do uh, uh, work around program uh, 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 Impact investing so we've uh, provide loan guarantees uh, We we did that in Newark which allowed a, a big chain supermarket to come into a lower-income neighborhood and it's uh, it's a wonderful thing to see
1: That's a great idea. Um Don Upton has a question.
7: Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, I wish I could use your preamble with your permission as the preamble for every regional initiative, and I thank you for it. Uh, my question is about regionalism. We, we build regional capacity systems for solving complex problems, four counties to 28. And as everybody on this call knows that uh, many regions have matured to be able to tackle problems, but others have not matured yet. In the past, what we've seen is We can tackle infrastructure and concrete and highways by joining together, we've all seen it, but we're seeing a movement now where finally regions that have not matured are looking at regionalizing around systemic thinking around the culture of health, of public health, linking med technology with economic development, with access, with equity. And I'm concerned that the window won't be open very long to do this But I know at least two large regions coming together to start now Don't want to stop want them to hold together and I wonder if you have any advice as we see Regionalization taking place not around highways and rail and talent, but around the theme of your organization
2: Yeah, no, that's that's terrific and we we see we see the efforts uh, around the nation that are, that give us hope uh, that different approaches um will will bear fruit uh, there's there's a, a terrific one around st louis that, that maxine knows about 24 24 1 you know where where you have small communities coming together to try and provide the services that allow people to to lead healthier healthier lives you know one of the things we look at is okay what can be done on the policy level to to encourage those kind of initiatives uh to make them worthwhile for 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 regions and uh, what, can you, what can we do to identify places that are, uh, uh, that are being successful in lifting that up? We give uh, out each year culture of health prizes, which um, really try and shine a light on places that are being successful, that are looking to build what we call a culture of health uh, based on equity, um, and lift up those stories um, and connect them to other communities so that we can, um, we can show that this isn't just a pipe dream. It's something actually that's happening in many places across Across America and it gives us hope um, that this 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 truly is possible, you know And and I I got a lot of hope out of the cares cares act that Congress passed You know, it was just about unanimous if it wasn't totally unanimous Um, It's short-term, but it was addressing Critical needs it didn't address everybody's needs, but it looked at uh, You know providing people with money and yeah there's been some interesting studies about universal basic income. What would it look like if everybody was given some money so that they just had the basics? And in a sense, that's what Congress did. They said, we're going to put some money in people's pockets because we know they're hurting. And we know if we give them some money, they're going to make uh, good choices and they're going to help take care of their families. Um, that was pretty exciting to see. There was uh, uh, effort at the federal, federal level to uh, put in Moratoria on foreclosures and evictions and cutting off people's utilities. It's like wow, you know In a matter in a moment of crisis uh, Such such a big divide in our political system could be bridged Um, It gives me hope that you know Maybe outside of a time of crisis we can all work together towards a vision of America. That uh, is the one that we all want to see
1: Thank you Uh, We have two more questions one from Howard Newman and Mike Britt. So first Howard
2: It was
5: terrific presentation your comments about the downtrodden being trod upon is is certainly true The uh, the Surgeon General raised another another issue in today's papers, right about the need for personal responsibility as well Um, Would you comment on whether he's completely off base whether he has a point which needs to be part of the conversation? What do you think about those kind of issues?
2: Yeah, I, I, I am a big believer in personal responsibility, uh, but I am also a big believer that people's choices, the choices people make depend on the choices that they have. And uh, for too many people in America, healthy choices aren't the easy choice. Uh, and for many, healthy choices just aren't, aren't available. So, you know, I worry when, when, um, when, when people lead with personal responsibility. Uh, If we had a system in which everyone had the same opportunity, then yeah Uh, uh, But but I have to tell you, you know uh, while for me uh, physical distancing is inconvenient uh, You know and my decision to go out or not is is an issue of personal responsibility uh, I know for millions of people in this country That's not a choice They have if they're not going out if they're not going out to work if they're not uh, leaving their house um, Their family's not eating and their rent's not going to be paid and even though there's no evictions now uh, That money's going to come due. So uh, uh, You know Yes, uh, people need to take responsibility within the the uh, the choices that are available to them
1: Thank you, uh, Mike sure.
8: Yeah, um, thanks very much for your explanation and also for what you're doing Um, I get concerned about one thing and how do you advise the people? That are in those low income situations What do you actually go and visit with them and who's advising them on how to improve their situations?
2: Yeah, I mean we're 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 sitting here in Princeton, New Jersey. We're pretty removed from the the problems that we're working to to address so we work with 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 grantees um, you, and we work at uh, at the policy level again through through grantees. Um, a lot we do we we invest a lot in leadership development, and so we have uh, what we call uh, change leadership programs. I think there are currently 600 or maybe up to 900 people in those programs now who work at the community level to to try and address the structural problems that they that they see, uh, and to work for change in communities so that. Uh, there will be more development in communities more investment more opportunity uh, and uh, you know working towards a day when everyone has that that fair opportunity for health
8: uh, do that but do they actually sit down with the people that are living there in order to give them specific advice on how to improve it's one thing to work with the communities and the builders and all the others but are there classes for the people to help them
2: yeah you know it's I kind of push back a little bit on, on that being the solution. Uh, you know, when I talk to my patients in, in clinic in, in Trenton, um, you know, these are our moms, young moms, older moms, um, they, they know what their kids need in terms of a healthy diet. They can't afford it. I remember I, the years I lived in New York city, I was, uh, for eight years, I worked in a community clinic, a federally qualified health center in Harlem. And I remember talking to this grandmother. Um, she was a foster mom for two kids, ages 9 and 11. And I said, well, let's talk about physical activity. Um, you know, the CDC recommends an hour a day for, for kids uh, your grandchildren's uh, age of, of vigorous physical activity. Um, tell me, what do they do after school each day? And she said, well, they, do th- they come home, they do their homework, and then they're on the computer or they're watching television. I said, well, you know, that's not good for their health. She says, I know the guidelines. It's not safe to go out on our streets, and so I, I, I worry that that we put too much emphasis on uh, uh, this idea that people's decisions are due to a lack of information, uh, rather than lack of conditions in, uh, that allow them to make healthy choices. Um, and and uh, you know where where classes are needed, that's that's great. Um, but so much more needs to be done to create the situations in which, which allow people to make those healthy choices. Yeah, now now I understand.
8: understand those choices, but what I'm talking about specifically is their financial acumen. In other words, how do they improve their jobs? What information can we give them to help them increase their income?
2: Yeah, yeah, and there are, you know, edu- education is, is just so critical. If you, if you look here in this, in this crisis and who's getting hit the hardest and who's losing their jobs, your college degree is, is such an incredible benchmark in terms of how you're faring in this. Um, so I think a lot comes down to how are we investing in, in, in education and in schools, and until we address that differential and we put the same resources into schools and lower-income neighborhoods, it's going to be hard to bridge that. I have seen some some nonprofits that are doing some very good work around financial acumen, um, and and that that is uh, that is very helpful. Um, but if you're if you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's hard it's hard to do that savings.
1: Yeah, I would I would add Mike on the program that Rich mentioned in St. Louis, the twenty four one program. They have extensive extensive uh, programming that you know, works with families alongside families towards home ownership financial literacy towards home ownership towards uh college funds for their children all kinds of programs that are on the one hand there's just the the day-to-day you know can we get you to help you survive on the other is the long-term planning and um grants federal grants from Gates and robert wood johnson help us do that uh to bring in uh, those kinds of programs so they are very successful when you can do them but even in the case of of this program uh, we've done, I think built 600 houses where people can buy on a low income, a low, low interest loan and own it. We still have thousands that we could build. You know, there's just always room for more opportunity, but without the Robert Wood Johnson, a foundation and others um, smaller and some, you know, like Gates investing in this, we could not do it. There wouldn't be a place for it. The banks are helpful. um, very helpful actually. Um, but We need the programming that that really works to support it, and it's not a short-term answer; it's a long-term play. I know Rich has to leave us. I don't know if there's any more questions. Um, Is there one more question? I don't. I don't see any. Um, So,
0: uh, Maxine,
1: Maxine, it's Barb Grogan. Go ahead, Barbara. I just want to say thank you, thank you for standing up to the people who for Lifetimes have been underserved. Your work is so important, and I, I just want to say thank you. This um, gives me hope, and it's uh, it's the absolute truth. And if we don't address the issues that you're talking about, I believed I believe our our country um, faces a very bleak future. So. From one person in denver, colorado. I just want to say thank you. You've made my day
2: Thanks barb. I uh, you know, i'm i'm an optimist. Um, I I see Uh things that give me a lot of hope and during this time of crisis, you know If you if you look over history, uh, and and the impact of pandemics There's an opportunity to help create the society uh, the America that that we think we should have and and that does give me um, a lot of hope every day and When I when I when I talk to to uh, People like many of you on on this call who are committed uh, To to creating uh, better lives in your communities. Um, that gives me a lot of hope as well
8: Maxine do you have time for one more question one more real quick? Thank um, you you. Do you think the things that, that we're doing as a country to, to get us back to well, – there, there's no normal anymore, but get us out of the situation we're in from health and economy, you think the actions we're taking or planning to take are going to address some of the issues you brought up uh, about inequality and uh, people participating in our society evenly?
2: Well, I mean, that's a big question. I have a, I have an op-ed piece in USA Today tomorrow that that talks about the things that um, I think need to be in place as we're reopening the economy. Uh, if we don't want to see the burden of increasing disease hitting the same populations who've, who've been hit so far, I think we have that choice. We have a choice to make in terms of uh, whose lives do we value and whose, whose do we not? Uh, where are we going to invest resources to make sure that those who need the most help are, are, are getting it. So this hits people uh, fairly. So uh, I'm optimistic. I see things that give me give me a lot of hope, and um, uh, I think I'll leave I'll leave it there.
0: As Dr. Besser explains, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has been working for 50 years to improve the life expectancies and health of low-income Americans, but now they've pivoted to providing more short-term aid to just get people through this crisis. While regional shutdowns and social distancing are necessary, Dr. Besser says the burden of these policies is hitting low-income people the hardest. He says it is time for government at every level to take a more tailored approach to help those most impacted by this crisis. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.